you said, Allison, about the imagination. Where do we go with it? Where do we take it? And maybe feeling like we have no limits is mm-hmm. one of the things that makes mm-hmm. us Canadian. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think so. I think the imagination is a connector for all of us. And I think what Neil Gaiman said about the power of libraries and stuff like that, and the prison system, and a lot of people in the criminalized or people don't read. It's a huge connector with reading, writing, words, books that goes beyond just having public libraries is very important and key. Mm-hmm. And language and literacy and how it opens up doors and the importance of dreaming for its own sake, not just for being an artist, the importance of opening up your mind to different possibilities and how empathy is a bridge for everything. If we had more empathy, I think we see a lot less issues today with racism and this kind of thing. Empathy is a bridge and storytelling is a huge part of that, right? So it all connects, I think. Well, do you think people are reading less? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. They're tweeting and texting on I don't, I don't know short attention span. Are they reading? I, I don't know. I mean, ebooks are there, but I think people still love to read, and that's important. But I think libraries are very important. There's this movement toward these communal mm-hmm. spaces, mm-hmm. and so libraries, I think, is kind of disturbing and moving away from books. And I'm not just saying physical books, but also ebooks, but this communal learning space, which is not really what we should be going towards. It's kind of a strange dynamic, really. But libraries are very important, whether they're e-books or real books, and it's a place for people to go. Yes. And as a child, that was my safe place. Yes, libraries. correct. I think libraries are accommodating that room to be social they are, within yes. their space. Yeah. So I think there's an answer. Like they're trying to respond to there's it. There's like notices. Very, yeah. yeah. But the statistics show that Canadians use libraries more. Yeah. And if you look, at, now it's starting to be quite outdated, but the Canadian Arts Consumer Profile was a brilliant nationwide piece of research that looked at Canadians' cultural experiences. And they asked people, they, they did like a huge random sampling thing, and they asked people what were their top 10 and 5 activities. And reading and library use went into the top 5, and, and, culture, and reading and books came above sports, about 57% of people. Uh, went to sports events and about 66% went to cultural events and when you got into library use they didn't see that as a cultural thing but in the in the you know Canadian culture way they saw that as kind of one of their core life activities mm-hmm. was going to the library and uh, you know if you if you talk to a US publisher they know that their Canadian market is about a fifth of their US market even though population is only a tenth because Canadians read mm-hmm. twice as much. Mm-hmm. So this study that you yeah. went, what year, what, did they do that annually or okay? No, it was, it was really big. It, it, it was big enough that it had a significant sample per city. So the, the city samples were 900 to 1,000 people for the random samplings and it was funded by all the province's cultural branches and Department of Canadian Heritage. So it was, it was a huge thing, but what they were trying to do was figure out not who makes art, but who buys art. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they, one of the things they discovered was if there was art education, you created educated consumers of art. Yeah. So the only place where there wasn't a correlation was in choirs, because there are so many amateur choirs that, mm-hmm. you know, they couldn't say that if you were in a choir as a kid, you went to a professional choir, because at that time there were only two professional choirs in Canada. Yeah. But in all the other arts, if you studied art as a kid, you went to art galleries. If you studied drama as a kid, you went to 
theater. Mm-hmm. If you read and went to libraries and studied literature as a kid, you read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and went to the libraries as an adult. That's an interesting question about culture because I wonder, like, uh, I wanted to ask what you guys see as the relationship between Canadian literature and Canadian identity. Like, do you think one influences the other or vice versa or if it's more complex than that? This is like the chicken or the egg yeah. question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really is. Does it change if you're a writer versus a reader? I don't know. I remember with Atwood, she focused a lot on nature and that kind of thing, and sort of saying that when I'm tenants of the Canadian literature, there's prose or poetry that focuses on nature. Nature, <laughs> the land. Always about the land. <laughs> and that could be true, but I don't know. I just don't see that. I mean, what I studied in, in high school, university, I just think it was more international. When I read Atwood, I it read The Blind Assassin, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I can't read The Handmaid's Tale, it's too close to reality, if you know, like, uh, where she's going with, with reproductive rights, and she's going there, and, you know, it's couched in a sci-fi world, I got it entirely, it was hard for me to read, but the poetry, I don't know, I think for me as a Canadian, the, the landscape is influential, and I write poems about the mountains and that and stuff like that, but is it part of Canadian identity? I just think it's broader than that. I don't think you just pigeonhole it to nature and that's it. Be Canadian's about the land. I just don't think so. I think it's more. And I really think the global perspective is a part of it. Us being the observers. For me, anyway. Even if you look at the career of Atwood, like depending on what you read, it's so different (laughs) like people who read like the edible woman will say that Camlet is a certain way whereas like you know this whole focus of the land thing like i read handmaid's tale it was my feminist awakening like it is for many people i imagine and then you read her more recent work she's not even writing about a real place much less Canadian places. It's hard. Like, what yeah. What about it is Canadian? Or even that. I learned that Jan Martel is Canadian, like, embarrassingly recently. <laughs> <laughs> like, embarrassingly recently. Somebody was like, yeah, he lives in Saskatoon. And I was like, literally the last place on earth you would imagine a story like Life of Pi to come out of. So, like, what is it? What of course, it didn't. He took the concept from a South American writer. That's something that I've heard. I, th- I heard it was from an Indian, like when he, on his, in his travels to India. Well, I think it was South American, wasn't it? I, I don't know. It was one of the... I don't know. I may be the only Canadian who has not read Life of Pi. It's no, I have not read it either, either. Although part of that is ideological. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a kid's book. No. no. Certainly not. Well, there's an uncomfortable area, too, that I, I think, post-Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I think some of this stuff is very much in the open, but I mean, the, the very weird thing is that if the Harper government is remembered for anything, it will not be remembered for 10 years of cultural clear-cutting. It will be remembered for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was one hell of a good idea, and for their apology to Canada's Aboriginal people for the residential schools and for the cultural assimilation policies that started way back before the 1860 whatever Indian I mean treaty number six which is the land that we live on was in 1865 that was the same year as the Indian Act right so and that act 
um, consolidated a number of assimilationist acts before it. So we're talking about a long history. Likewise, there's an apology, um, not that was pretty hard for government to the Chinese Canadian people yeah. for the head tax, mm-hmm. right, That's and crazy. reparations for people who suffered because of the head tax. So there have been these public apologies which actually allow us to live in an era of reconciliation in a different way. But when I go to the U.S. and I talk about, or I listen really, I don't talk about race relations, <laughs> it's a completely different landscape. It's a, a place that is full of entrenchment. And I, I sometimes think as Canadian artists that, that part of our specialty over the last 50 years has been picking off the scabs, right? Has been actually going to the uncomfortable places. And if there's an identity difference, I think that it has to do with the fact that we're proud of our diversity, but we're not not necessarily proud or defensive about our history. Yes, because that's something, this this somewhat related anecdote. I was at the Canadian uh, Museum for Human Rights in Winnipeg, Manitoba. They do an incredible exhibit there where they talk about the failures of Canada to recognize human rights. So we're talking about things like the Japanese internment camps, the Chinese head tax, the indigenous residential schools, Yeah, so it's an incredible museum that takes a long, hard look at the things that we're not good at. And and I think that that's interesting. My boyfriend goes to school in Baltimore, which is, he's learned, it was zero to 100 in terms of like race relations, learning things about race relations in America. And he was like, it's incredible how different it is. People get so defensive. Like when you think about Michelle Obama saying at the DNC that she lives in a house built by slaves and the backlash on that, people were like, no, it wasn't, but it was. <laughs> and and so I think that's interesting. I don't know what it is culturally that allows us to pick off the scabs. That's a great analogy. I don't know. Well, it could be because because we, we've already, I think we our agreement, the um, six of us here, right? So that's a quorum. We're all, <laughs> we're all of Canada. Yeah. We are in agreement. Oh, we're, here. <laughs> we're in agreement that we do have that observer outsider mm-hmm. sort of aesthetic yeah. to our arts. Commentator. Yeah, commentator to mm-hmm. our arts. Mm-hmm. So maybe we we just know that you can't you can't comment from a space of or a place of strength if you don't know your own weaknesses. If you don't pick off the scab, you don't recognize that there are scabs, <laughs> that there are wounds. You know, and I think we're still small enough in population as a nation that we have to see every one of us, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Do you know? Yeah, yeah, I would just like to add to, to that. Um, I think we're self-reflective is what I hear you're saying. And I see that in poetry where the plethora of what's being put out there has made people ask, okay, so what's missing? Where can I find a niche? Where can I fill a gap? And I think that has made us look more closely at our experience. So all this literature has kind of had an interesting effect where it's asked us to go back to the drawing table of self-reflection and see what else can be added to another voice. And I, I find that quite interesting because that is another addition to what becomes the picture of our identity, which is an interesting thing. Awards and all, Canada has developed in the way it has, and we're very proud of our country because of what it's achieved, awards and all. Yeah. I hate to to bring this up, but I'm going to, that um, because we are used, self-reflection happens in a space of quiet and stillness, right? And let's 
face it, winter. <laughs> there's nothing. Winter is long here, <laughs> and and that is a long period of stillness that's, and quiet and so darkness. darkness. Yeah. Because a lot of sometimes I'll talk to expat writers who are now naturalized Canadians but come from different places, and I think I was talking to somebody from the UK, and he's like, winter is long here, and I was like. <laughs> And this surprises you. How? Yeah. And he was like, no. <laughs> but they were saying, you know, like, winter helps them be productive writers. And because there is this quiet, this stillness, this isolation. Maybe that's why, because sometimes I think about this Scandinavian writers and how their literature is a very, there's a very distinct flavor there, especially in the crime novels. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that cohesiveness is also because <laughs> it's so cold there yeah. and they just have to write a lot and think a lot about what their kind of style of writing is um, winter <laughs> I feel like that's the one thing that bonds Canadians together more more now I think than landscape because over 50% of Canadians are urban and always mm-hmm. have been yeah. from settler days right right um, we think of of the whole idea of, of settlement as being this, you know, let's go live in a sod shanty on the prairies and take over from the indigenous people and, you know, have this prairie culture. But there were always half the people were in towns. Yeah. Always. So, you know, those of us, like, I am I am totally an urban person. I was born in Edmonton. Um, I love cities. I love the back alleys of cities. I love, you know... Nice skyscrapers, not the ugly ones, but you know, the <laughs> tower, right? Um, that's my that's my landscape, but the weather, I share with everyone, right? And so weather is like a kind of landscape and a kind of language, and you you see that thread from yeah from early writing. You know, if you really go back and you look at some of those early texts that get taught in the only now and before, like Catherine Park Trail and. You know, roughing it in the bush and all those things. Weather, like. And that's the whole thing. Yeah. I think people yeah. will sometimes think, they think like, oh, the prairies have nothing in common with the Maritimes. I'm like, no. Think about the weather. Think about the weather. People are <laughs> like, you know, weather is like, a, like deeply affects their livelihood. It's like life or death <laughs> in, in some situations. Well, the weather gives Canada space. I mean, if it weren't this cold, we wouldn't have even had more people here. <laughs> well, the early settlers traveling Absolutely. across the country they yeah. encountered very, very few native people because the weather just wouldn't allow those large populations of hunters and gatherers. And we've got that space, and that gives us the Canadian mm-hmm. identity as well. Yeah, that's true. It's cold means that they're not. It's true. Otherwise, there would be more. And we have to burn fossil fuels to keep warm. (laughs) I wanted to add to something you had said, Alison, about imagination. I was thinking imagination is very related to adaptability. Ah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So adaptability requires imagination, and I certainly adapting to climate or whatever. Or even adaptability. Imagination and adaptability means like imagination for like multitude in terms of identity. Like we can we can imagine diversity because you know we have to adapt that way. Oh, I just I'm just feeling that the missing the lack of an indigenous voice in this conversation right now. Yeah. Right, because that's too. yeah. It's like having a sovereign nation within what we're calling Canada, and I'm oh I'm just really missing that voice. I would mm-hmm. really I would really like to hear that perspective. 
I just think imagination is the key to a lot of things and the race relations here in terms of black people and that, and that there's been a lot of racism here, is a lot of work. And I think this, this outside perspective might lend to that mm-hmm. and hearing these voices and probably like Bashir Muhammad and the black cyclists, what happened to him, we have a lot of work to do here in terms of racism against black people and other invisible minorities. And hopefully the imagination and the empathy can be a bridge for that as well. Yeah. Well, our work has to be done here, the, not just in states yeah. here. Yeah. And that's where I think, as artists, we live in a circle of privilege that we don't always understand, and it's the privilege of imagination and memory. Like Brian Fawcett wrote a book called Cambodia, a book for people who find television too slow. And he included in it a long essay about Cambodia, and he talked a great deal about memory and imagination. And I was really struck by how he'd consolidated how often those terms came up as people talked about, about their work. Memory and heritage and history and imagination and complexity and, you know, how they, they fit. But I'm really struck sometimes by, after 45 years in the arts community, by how those two concepts and the constant grappling with them by most of the people I know has created a kind of intense sub-community of thought that isn't necessarily shared. So you can still be shocked when a cyclist gets called a racial epithet, you know, get out of the way, you whatever. And you think, are we still living in that world after all these years of, (laughs) of all the art that I have seen that is trying to and, you know, it's not like writers sit down at their com- keyboards or their notebooks and they say, I'm going to write about <laughs> social issues and change the world. It's that if you absorb the world around you, the things that stick their thorns into your flesh are what you brings you to, to the writing. Yeah. So you can't, and, and writers are, are, are trying to use the word seers, not seers, mm. although that too yeah. sometimes, but you can't help looking at what's really there because mm-hmm. that's part of the job other people can keep their illusions but most writers that I know can't mm-hmm. so you you have to grapple with it and then out of that comes what you write and even you know one of the interesting things about looking at writing the Canadian identity is that even writers who don't primarily identify as Canadian, who don't primarily yeah. identify as literary, and who don't primarily identify as writers with, you know, of thought, um, are still writing, grappling with some of the same issues. And you see it in, in their novels, and you see a difference in the novels say, you know, you, you read a, a lot of mystery novels, you can see a slightly different, because mysteries are very moral fiction, right? They're about the order of things, mm-hmm. and the disrupted order, and the return of order, yeah. And, yeah. and so on. And, and the way that, that we look at order, and the way that we try to conceive of a, a reintegrated order after disruption is, is really different from other countries, and not just the U.S., although that is the elephant <laughs> that, that we're in bed with, but you know, all across the world, people, people are having, artists are having the same issue. But I also think that that, that the ability to, to do this work gives us a kind of privilege that's a good, that's good, because we need to exercise it in order to create our art. Like, we need to have that little bit of ego to create art and that little place to stand. But it also makes us sometimes unaware of of what's going on with the non-readers and the non-art goers and the non-theater goers 
who are also shaping Canadian identity and not always in ways that are likable. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that we like because who knows what, mm-hmm. you know, there's six of us, we represent at least 12 um, Canadian <laughs> attitudes, <laughs> if, not, if not, you know, 24. Um, but, you know, it's not likable when you see racism as a day-to-day experience for some people. It's, it, it should not be likable. We should find it always a thorn in our flesh, right? or sexism or discrimination against various sorts of queer people or any sort of uh, kind of inequality. That, that galls me. Mm-hmm. It always has, and it's where some of my, my anger comes from, and anger fuels my work and has. But I don't sit down and say, gee, I'm angry about Bashir and Muhammad, and so I'm going to write about a cyclist who got, who got shouted at and, and harassed and, and abused. Um, no, it just goes into the soup and out of it comes some other stuff later. And that's just, that's my process. Other people do, in fact, sit down and say, I'm going to take on this, this thing, and then they do. And, and I, you know, I think when you look at our finished books, you may not be able to tell the difference because all of that is really processed. But, but the outcome is, is this sense of enhanced seeing. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, just, I think we're all not journalists, but just to kind of speak, what's that? I was just thinking about journalism. Yeah, to, I think, um, I, I like what you say because you're speaking about intentionality. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking even a journalist has some, you know, what they choose to bring to light yeah. um, is really, mm-hmm. and it, it can be a really intentional yeah. endeavor, that I think is really interesting. That's really interesting to her. I was, I was talking with a writer yesterday who said, you know, all writing is political. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah. Political science student? That makes me super happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's true. And I think that yeah. what you choose to write is incredibly political. But you also, and like, if, if you're, you know, a person of color, somebody who's, you know, generally experiences marginalization or oppression, then you're choosing to write is it a, is a political act because you're using your voice. Mm-hmm. And like, what we choose to write about is intentional sometimes not intentional right it's because like your blind spots are blind spots because you can't see them mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so yeah, that's, that's what second drafts are for like, <laughs> no i mean that quite seriously like yeah. that's what for me is is an indicator of quality is that a writer has has not that they write in a certain style or that they write in a certain format or whatever but that they have clearly examined their text after they blurted it out onto the page and have had a dialogue with it and have discussed with themselves not necessarily even with others like not necessarily have workshopped it but have actually discussed and and it gets to intentionality lovely word um you know did i really mean to have these characters have that relationship or did it come out of my prejudices and you still have you still are blind in some ways but you can be less blind over time. And, you know, one of the things that I realized watching my mother age, and luckily she was not troubled too much with sort of dementia or mental problem, but she was in a nursing home for six years. And so there were her roommates who who did have memory loss and so on. And they were reverting to some of their youthful memories and behaviors. And I realized that I will be glad not to be noticing if that happens to me because the world of my youth was not the world of now. And the speech of my youth, what people said around me, um, was not the speech of now. 
and the attitudes were not the attitudes of now. And I would see that with my mother's generation. She died at 99 and a half years, so she almost made 100. She would have been 100 last Christmas, you know. And so that generation is, that cohort is now moving through nursing homes and there, and some kinds of aging disinhibit you. And the way that they are talking to and treating the, the, the mainly women, mainly immigrant women who are working with them is actually pretty appalling. Mm -hmm. But it's not coming from their 2016 experience. It's coming from their, you know, 1925 or 1930 or 1940. But they're losing their, their modern resources. And it actually kind of freaks me out to think that I might lose memory and lose you know, really a, a change that has been a lifelong thing, you know, and I'm, I'm in my 60s now, and you think, I don't want to change again sometimes, you just want to stay home and pull the covers over your head, but it's such a, a miraculous cultural world, and, and, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and looking, I'm on the uh, Edmonton Heritage Council, and we made a kind of a vow to look at our work through that lens of, of reconciliation, particularly for one year, and then incorporated ongoing and it has meant an immense amount of institutional change for a very young organization but also meant some amount of paying attention and learning for all the individuals involved and you know I'm thinking I'm so lucky to have had like other people's courage and other people's stories to help me mm -hmm. in that understanding and to help me carry that forward and watching people go through that journey is has been immense, but when you talked about missing an Aboriginal voice at the table, you know, we know that 20 years ago that might have been thought of, but yeah. not in the same kind of acute mm -hmm. sort of sense of loss or sense mm -hmm. of, of absence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think what you're saying now really highlights the intentionality, like how much of our identity is intentionality mm -hmm. um, of, you know, aiming your imagination intentionally. Yeah. And that's our art. <laughs> what we create in our art and as as a nation in our mm -hmm. identity that, that brings up for me and more questions yeah <laughs> Robert, Robert McKee said that theme is the writerly perspective on the significance of the story which I say to my students because I think it frees them from having to think about theme because as soon as you are exist and write you have perspective mm -hmm. right and it, it will express itself like you were saying it, how you expressed those things in, in your novel that you're holding in front of you right there, you know, and it's inevitable that we will take a position on the material and that we will have a sense of the significance of the story. And that's why we told it, because writing takes time. Yeah. So we aren't, we aren't going to waste our time on something that, you know, I mean, that, that's intentionality at the base level. Like you either write or you don't write. And if you write <laughs> and you take the time and you take the effort, then what you write is significant by the fact that you chose to write it and not, yeah. Yeah. not some other thing, or that your subconscious chose to write it, that it came out, whatever. Can I just quickly go back to your, your talk about journalists and nonfiction writers and intentionality? Because I wanted to mention Myrna Kostash's book, The Frog Lake Reader. And she's got another one now, too. But this was a book where she did almost no editorializing. But she chose and arranged material from the historical record, uh, primary sources, um, to talk about the, the Frog Lake incident, right? And the contemporary material and, and how different people spoke about it and so on. And it's an astonishing piece of work because what it does is it makes its statement through the intentional juxtaposition of these primary sources. 
of, of the research sources. And, um, you know, as a piece of kind of retroactive journalism, it struck me as extraordinary, but I think that she was able to write because of where she came from, where she was situated in, in the, in the kind of Canadian experience, or she was able to create it, I should say, because of all the kinds of, of things we've been talking about, the outside kind of diversity and, and immigrant experience and so on, has enabled her to have a look at those issues and mm-hmm. from a really raw place. Kind of, and that was her choice and how she would deal with that rawness was not to write about her rawness, but to simply place it and contextualize it in, in that way. And, and uh, I think it's one of the nonfiction works recently that should become part of the canon if it isn't already uh, for that reason. That's kind of it for me. Is there anything important that I forgot to ask or anything else you guys think I need to know? Did this add to what you've been collecting? Yeah, okay. I think good. there's some new stuff, which is always exciting. There's also like similarities, which That's is good. also fun. Yeah. Because I, I was, you know, I think I was a little bit naive in thinking that there was going to be one answer <laughs> to what Canlet is. But I definitely see similar thematic responses to questions. And I also really like talking about diversity and um, particularly Indigenous voices is something that I've heard again and again, which is like really excellent because I don't think that people would have been saying that, you know, like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's... Well, not in the same way, certainly. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Well, I think we have to, too, think about what Canada is becoming in the future. You know, there are some things I find interesting. For example, no one liked living under the Nazis or the communists. But now Canada is becoming a snitch society. If you're someone you don't like, or someone annoys you, or irritates you, or a business competitor, all you have to do is write to the CRA, Canadian Revenue Agency, and say they're cheating on the income tax. Lo and behold, they'll be investigated and put under the grill, and you might even get a bonanza out of it. A sharing in the profits, and it's a better deal than a Vegas trip. That's one aspect of Canada's <laughs> concerns me. Some, yeah. Anyway. There's a Canadian critic named John Clute, who, among other things, helped to uh, co-wrote the, the Encyclopedia of Fantasy and the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. And Clute lives in London and has for four years, but his perspective is very based in a kind of observer Canadian identity thing, and. Um, he wrote a definition of, of a fantasy narrative that I find useful to talk about fiction in general. And I just want to talk about it briefly because there's something I want to say about Canadian fiction and I have to give you this little preamble. He talked about a narrative, a self-completing narrative, that is to say a narrative with a beginning, middle, and end, goes through these certain stages. And the first one is called wrongness, the perception of wrongness. Um, the second one is called thinning, in which the the wrongness creates progressive thinning of the world as you, as you begin to perceive more and more that sense of wrongness. Uh, culminating in a moment he calls recognition, he has this lovely sentence, he says, where the protagonist sees the shriveled heart of the thinned world and knows what to do. And then after recognition comes a, a kind of resolution phase in some fictions and then uh, a healing or consolation uh, which apparently is a religious term, but not being a religious scholar, I don't know that. And so a, 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 complete, a completed narrative would have all of those, but some narratives get stuck in different spots. 
So he was writing about speculative fiction. So he talked about how um, supernatural fictions were stuck in wrongness, ghost stories or that sort of thing, or poltergeist story or something. Um, horror was stuck in thinning. And that when that moment of recognition took place, then the story became a story that could be completed and healing could take place. What interests me about a lot of literary Canadian fiction, and I had to, I had to read all the short story books from Canada that were submitted to the Denuta Gleed Award for the Writers' Union of Canada a couple of years ago. 30 books of short fiction, of which maybe 24 were basically literary short fiction, and then there were, there were the outliers. And the outliers were in two categories, speculative fiction and Aboriginal writers, who were writing from their storytelling traditions. And let me tell you, it was very interesting trying to push other jury members to actually read those uh, as valid storytelling traditions, but that's another story. But of these sort of 24 books, the first one I read, it was like, oh, this is cool, this does this, this, and this. I made a little note on a sticky note, stuck it on the cover. Then the next book, same note, same, I mean, you know, I could have just photocopied the sticky note, right? Um, and, I, and I realized that a certain part of Canadian literary fiction is stuck in thinning, in the same way that horror is in speculative fiction. It puts people who are marginally competent into difficult situations in which they and their immediate surrounding people, often including babies and pets, are at risk, and then leaves them there. So it's like a short story will be a day in the life of marginalized warehouse worker, just got fired Bob, his divorced wife, his infant child, and her hamster. And then there you are, uncomfortable for a while, and then you leave Bob, and you never find out if Bob ever gets better. Or the hamster, you, you never find out if the hamster really did die of neglect or whatever, right? And it, it seemed to me that if you want to talk about the dark side of what we've been talking about, you, you need to also talk about where do our fictions and our poetry and so on, where do our acts of the imagination get stuck, right? And are they stuck in different places than other national and regional literatures? And so there's a question that I don't know that we've talked a lot about, but I think we've touched on. And if there was anything left unsaid, it would be that. Are we stuck in thinning? And we haven't actually looked at the shriveled heart of our thinned world and figured out what to do. And who has? And are those the writers that endure and become part of the canon? Or are the writers who leave us in that uncomfortable but often beautifully expressed place of thinning? Because some of these writers are brilliant, Beautiful sentences, lovely writers. You, I couldn't read like the whole book of short. I'd have to stop story by story because I was in, deeply involved. But at the same time, when you stand back and you look at 24 out of 30 of the short story books submitted from Canada in that year, had 10 stories like that, or 12, or 14. And where did the outliers place themselves, and, and why were they outliers, right? And, you know, one of the questions you... You know, I think we're left with is where are our blind spots? Where are we stuck? As well as where are we good? Because you know, we're happy to talk about where we're proud and where we're good, but it's more uncomfortable to talk about whether parts of our literature are stuck. Not and and in, with such a diversity of literature, I don't think everyone is in that same place. But I do think that you know, especially as one gets older as a writer, you're much more aware of. There's a Jackson Brown line that I never forget out of the song. It says, don't remind me of my failures. I have not forgotten them. 
right? And I think as we get older, the barriers to writing become that we're more aware of the failures of ourselves as artists and of our literatures or of our, our art form. And so we don't, we don't want to repeat them. That's a good place to like, to wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you all for coming. Well, thank was... you.